ribs had punctured my left lung, which you know, I look back at, at Skip and what he did, because if somebody had have careered into my right side while I was on the ground, I probably wouldn't be here today. So, you know, it was a fantastic thing and forever grateful to Skip. He's breathing okay at the moment. Is it a big property? That blood pressure is not coming up. Hi, my name is Lana Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service. This is a podcast series about life in the bush, mateship, courage, and the role that the Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in serving rural and remote communities. This is the Flying Doctor Podcast. My name is Kira Lee Dargan from the Royal Flying Doctor Service and I'm an Aboriginal woman of the Wiradjuri Nation. This podcast has been recorded on Ngunnawal land and is being broadcast across all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations. We at the Royal Flying Doctor Service want to acknowledge Elders past and present. The RFDS recognises that this is First Peoples land and always will be. Based on recent surveys, there are an estimated 75,000 dedicated mountain bike riders within Australia. This is not the number of people who own a mountain bike, but the estimated number who dedicatedly spend their weekends, holidays and leisure time on trails and tracks and adventures. You'll find mountain biking events across every state and territory of this large continent, from short one-day events to longer programs extending over many days and in remote parts of the country. Mountain biking is fast, requires good balance, strength and endurance, and it often brings out the competitive spirit in riders. From young kids to us in our older years, mountain biking is enjoyed by many. And by survey, the top three reasons that mountain bikers cite that they ride are one, for the outdoor experience, two, for fitness, and three, for socialising. Paul Fides has been an avid mountain biker for some time and these three reasons are why he got heavily involved in the sport. G'day Paul. G'day Lana. When did you start mountain bike riding? I've been a keen road cyclist for about 30 years and around about 2011, 2012, a few of my very close cycling mates decided that they wanted to get into mountain biking and so we all bought mountain bikes and they got keener on it than me but eventually I came across to their thinking and we started riding in winter around some of the mountain biking tracks of Perth. Was that a big transition to go from being a road cyclist where you're on bitumen and it's pretty predictable, uh, your biggest challenge really is cars and trucks and so forth, to being on the trails in on a different type of bike, different tyres and the other challenges. Was it, a, was it difficult to navigate that change? Well, you've obviously got the, the, the strength and we had the strength, but, yes, it's very different. You still have to have your wits about you on a road bike, but it's a lot more predictable because apart from potholes that happen on on the road, you're in a group of cyclists and you've just got to look at the cyclists in front of you and to the side of you and there's not much dodging of obstacles, whereas in mountain biking, 
it's at you every second that you're on a mountain bike, especially on a downhill run where you're going quite fast and things are flashing in front of you every second. Did you immediately love mountain biking or was it um, a slow burn? I think it was a slow burn for me. I still loved my road riding, but my mates were all going up in the hills and so I thought I'd better join them and their skill base was probably a little bit better than mine because they'd started a bit earlier, but we used to love going up and doing some of the sort of the beginner to intermediate um, uh, mountain biking courses because they're a bit, mountain biking is graded a bit similar to downhill skiing whereby they have black runs and blue runs and green runs and all that sort of stuff. And my mates had certainly got into the black run stuff. I hadn't quite got to there by by that stage. But I started enjoying it more and more and relaxing a bit more on the bike the more I did it, obviously. So it was all social to begin with, so just you and the mates going out of a weekend. And at what point did you start to move into competitive mountain biking? Well, Lana, I, I never really joined competitive mountain biking. In road riding, in the early days, I used to do a number of sort of uh, – races they were wa based races and in actual fact a group of us um and this would be close to 30 years ago decided uh, with road riding that we would like a semi-competitive event that was more a participation event and so we formed up a thing called bicycling wa that had events whereby teams of riders could actually uh, enter the event um, wasn't supposed to be a competitive event but it ended up as a competitive event with people trying to teams of riders trying to beat each other and so what happened with uh, the mountain biking was and there's a, an event down south called the cape to cape my mates decided that they wanted to do it it's a four-day event and they they were keen to go in it and they had done it for a couple of years before they said to me, Paul, you've got to go in this event. I'd ridden them with them in a lot of the road cycling events that we had entered. And we'd been over east, we'd been to Europe, we'd been doing a whole heap of road cycling. And I guess we'll start to enter the same journey with mountain biking, with sort of adventures both within Western Australia as well as uh, interstate and overseas. Whilst they weren't competitive, it's very competitive between your mates. Whoever gets to the top of the hill, etc., etc., which is what cycling is all about. They talk about the fact that if you get two cyclists together, you've got a race. Right. <laughs> the Cape to Cape is a four-day event. How do you do – is that all-day riding? The Cape to Cape, it's a four-day event. You don't actually ride all day. You probably, depending on how good you are, the top cyclists probably complete most of the courses over the four days in maybe an hour and a half, two hours. Um, us mere mortals can take this <laughs> way through. Uh, and normally with like a road cycling event, most of our events were over 100 kilometres. But with a mountain biking event, it was somewhere between uh, and the Cape to Cape between 40 and 70 kilometres a day. But your average speed uh, on a mountain bike would probably be half to two-thirds what you would do on a a road bike because it's 
trails, it's rough riding across rocks and dirt and dodging trees and doing all of that sort of thing rather than being on a road, just um, gliding along, you know, pedalling as hard as you can. How wide are the tracks that you're riding on? Is it enough for just one bike or is there enough for three or four bikes wide? Or So it varies. Um, and the Cape to Cape has some made roads through to fire trails that might be two bikes wide, three bikes wide, through to what mountain bikers absolutely love, which is called single track. And single track is only one bike can get down single track. Um, a person that wants to overtake would have to go into the bush to overtake the person in front. You've got lots and lots of obstacles and little turns and you name it that you've got to try and navigate. And you watch the really skilled riders and they, it is unbelievable what they can do and how fast they can navigate those sorts of uh, courses. Wow. Okay. So this is really interesting, actually. So then do they time each rider or is it just about places and who comes first, second, third or 25th? We used to have it whereby you would wear an, an ankle brace that goes over a timing device and, um, and then at the end it goes back over the timing device. And that, in fact, in the Cape to Cape, that, that's what actually happens. So they would have a mat at the start. You carry the timing device, usually on, on your ankle, and when you go over the, the finishing line, then it cuts off the time and you get given that time. And over the four days, those times are added up, and obviously whoever has the least time wins the event. Hmm, that makes sense. So I guess from my perspective, I do have one question, which is as you're whizzing along, do you really get to see or focus on anything much other than where am I going and what's in the way? It sounds very focused rather than a leisurely bushwalk. It, it really does sound like a, a tearing through the bush. Is that right? It depends on the competitive nature of the person entering the event. I must admit from very early age, it's always been... I've got to beat my mates. <laughs> so, and whether it be rottenness, swim, or you name it, I don't care about winning the event, but love to beat my mate. You know, so, so. Right. And in Cape to Cape, you get the full range of people. You'll get people that they will be three hours after the uh, top competitors and they just want to enjoy and probably do it at 10 to 15 kilometres an hour maximum, just enjoying watching mm. the fauna, the birds, you name it, along the way, through to the, the front guys that absolutely just hammer it at 30 kilometres plus and going down hills at 60, 70 kilometres an hour, dodging trees and jumping over rocks and doing all of that and everything in between. Does the Cape to Cape refer to specific capes? What, what, is, what is the name? Where does that come from? The Cape to Cape is in, most people will have heard of the Margaret River region. It's just a magnificent yeah. part of Australia. At one end of the Cape, um, there's a lighthouse and at the other end of the Cape is another lighthouse. 
And there's probably about, uh, I think, from one end of the Cape to another end of the Cape is about 160 kilometres. In actual fact, myself and a whole bunch of our mates had um, road-ridden it a number of times socially uh, on our road bikes. And so there was a bit of an attraction to actually doing this event as a mountain bike event as well. And the course zigzags between the two the two Cape lighthouses, basically. Um, so over the four days, mm. you wander your way from one Cape to the other Cape lighthouse. Right. Well, let's go to that day in 2013. It was October. You arrived with your mates to do the Cape to Cape. Could you describe what sort of day it was that, that morning when you pulled up at, on day one? I was meeting all, all our riding mates and there was probably dozen or 14 and one of our mates has got a, uh, a very successful bike racking system named the team uh, Steady Rack Team and we all had the kit all decked out and he had the marquee and everything like that so I picked one of my mates up and took our caravan down and checked into a caravan park down on the Cape um, and uh, stayed the night got got up early that morning and I had two bikes. I had my fat tyre bike and my mountain bike. In the Cape to Cape, there's, uh, on day one, there's a significant amount of beach and most most people along the that stretch have to get off their bike, uh, depending on the conditions of the sand, and actually walk their bike for about two kilometres. And I thought I'd be really smart day one, <laughs> really smart. And take oh, your fat, fat bike. <laughs> Contrary to a lot of very sound advice from my mates going, you're an idiot, Paul. But I thought, I'm going to be able to beat them if I don't have to walk along the beach. So, <laughs> so I'll take my fat tyre bike and I'll be able to ride along the sand and while they're all walking, I will stream past them and just have sand in their faces. Yeah. It had lots of merit, I thought, on the morning, and I only made the decision that morning that I would that I would do that. But anyway, even though it's sort of not supposed to be a race for us, you're nervous in the morning. Just made sure bike was all in order, and um, myself and my mate jumped in the car, put the bikes on the back of the the, the car, and there's quite a logistical issue with the event because. You might drive to the start of the event with the bikes, but then you leave the car, but then you end up, you know, 60 kilometres away and you either got to ride your bike back or get a mate that that will drive the car. And fortunately, we had a couple of uh, mates that had gone down that were bike riders. They decided early that they wouldn't have entered the event and they became the support crew. So there, there were probably, I think there was about 14 in the team and two or three support crew. So we drove to the start, and it's absolutely, it's the most gorgeous setting. Um, you get down, and you're right on the end of the Cape, and you got sort of surf and waves breaking, um, and it, it was a magnificent day that we started, and, and green grass everywhere, and you've got flags and cyclists everywhere. As I mentioned earlier, this podcast has been made possible with the support of Isuzu Ute Australia. 
Having reliable vehicles is imperative in the harsh Australian outback, and Isuzu have provided D-Max Utes and MUX SUVs to pull seven large RFDS flight simulators as they engage in school, community and field day activities for the Royal Flying Doctor Service. These simulators are full-size planes minus the wings and the Isuzu D-Max and MUX vehicles are a perfect match for the long-distance heavy towing demands of these RFDS simulators right across Australia. So keep an eye out for them as they travel around each state and we would love to see photos and locations on our Flying Doctor podcast community Facebook page when you see them. people are in this event um it had built from sort of the first event to about 2,000 people that they were put so wow 2,000 bikes with a lot of people next to a a lighthouse uh with waves in the background and the sun shining brilliant blue sky it was just going to be an awesome event and everybody's sort of having that nervous energy before an event so we're chatting to our mates and you know uh, and it, it just felt a festive atmosphere down there. You know, arrive about half an hour before the event, make sure you've got, you know, your water bottles and all the food that you need, which is basically gels. And you, you're just sort of thinking through, okay, how am I going to approach this? How on earth do 2,000 bikes end up merging into a track which may be only three bikes wide? Often you'll have staggered starts and that particular event in that year they didn't have much of a staggered start they had a roped off section for all the professional riders that were in that category and then behind that it was a matter of a bit of self-seeding because the people that really wanted to do it as a tour they would go at the back those that were super competitive and wanted to try and beat the professionals would be right at the front and they would get in there early and I stood there along the line thinking, do I want to be tour or do I want to be pro? And, and I sort of plonked myself a bit closer to the pro bit than the, than the tourists. But I kept telling myself, Paul, it's not a race. So just take your time and you'll be okay. And as long as you finish, you'll be fine. So the gun goes off. The gun goes off and... Some of us get white lion fever <laughs> because then it's everybody trying to click into their pedals and get going and get momentum. And so it is a bit chaotic at the start. And 50 metres down the track, you're pretty well sorted. You know, you, you spread out that little bit and the start's quite wide. And the first part of the, the, the race is on bitumen. So you've probably got half a kilometre of Bitchman Road whereby everybody spreads out and spreads across the road and away you go. So at what point did you end up on a track off that bitumen and, and into the actual bush? So about 500 metres up the road we turned left and there's a big hill uh, in Augusta which is the Cape Lewin part of the event, the start part which is in the southern tip of um, the Margaret River area and then you start a climb and I had the fat tyre bike, so they don't go as fast up a hill. And often people can tell the road riders because we're very strong going up the hills, 
but and we, so we overtake a lot of the really good technical mountain bikers and then we're incredibly slow going down the hill so they get agitated at road riders who can't go fast enough down the hills because we haven't got the skills um but we can overtake them going up the hills so you generally just get in the way yeah (laughs) yeah and there is a bit of abuse that happens along the way right so we turned off to the left it was steep riding and and i'm looking at and i'm overtaking all of these normal mountain bikes on my fat bike and people go whoa and so i got towards the the top of the hill and whilst i told myself regularly at the start line it's not a race paul it's not a race I get to the top of the hill and I think, God, I'm not far off the front group. <laughs> I could do really well here. I think I've beaten all my mates up the top. And imagine when I get to the beach. This is going to be awesome. It's nothing like ego. Nothing like it. <laughs> and in actual fact, the support crew that had got to the top of the hill later told me that they couldn't believe it. I was there. Everybody else was gagging and... Uh, trying to get a breath, and I was smiling, <laughs> going fast and waving, thinking this is going to be the greatest thing of all time. So you go heading down the hill. So you, it's quite a steep decline, right, as you're heading down. Because it was on the Cape, it, it's sort of the first part in going up the hill was the low coastal scrub. But by the time you get to the top of the hill and on the other side, it's protected from the salt, etc. So that's where you start getting bigger trees and stuff like that happening. And a bit further up the road are the beautiful big carry forests and that with big, huge trees. So, so you're in that transition phase between um, the coastal scrub and medium trees to tall trees. But you're too busy trying to get to the bottom of that hill as fast as you can to look at the forest. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> to look at the beach, because the beach was at, at, at the end of that hill and I was so looking forward to getting to that beach. My whole focus was how many people I was going to overtake on the beach. So I hit the, you know, got to the top of the hill and I don't know what happened, but something in my brain sort of the caution went out the wind because I actually started overtaking a few mountain bikers and my fat bike didn't have suspension. So normally a mountain bike will have suspension, which in hindsight wasn't that smart a thing to do. So I started overtaking everyone and I'm thinking, this is fantastic and I was loving descending. So you haven't got any turns or anything like that. And I thought, I could go as fast as I like down here because I'm not going to dodge trees or anything like that. What I didn't know, because uh, I hadn't ridden the course before, was that every so often they plough across the track to put in like a water diversion so that it doesn't wash out the track too much. Oh, no. And, you know, a lot of mountain bikers, I mean, they love them because they launch off them into the air and do these massive jumps on, off them. And you on your fat, tired bike, I don't think was anticipating. No, I had no idea of the fact that there was one of these jumps. And in actual fact, I later found out that there had been a few accidents uh, or a few people spilling off the bike, but probably not at the speed that I was going because I'd estimate I was probably doing 60 to 70 kilometres an hour by the time I hit this mound if you like 
and I just vividly remember and you know it was probably a split second but and a lot of people talk about that but I remember just floating through the air and not knowing uh, I, I lost wh where I was on the bike um, I just know I was floating through the air and it felt like you know at least 10 seconds but it was probably a split second you know one minute I was on the track thinking about the beach and then the next minute I was flying through the air and obviously went kaboom hit the dirt and maybe a rock I'm not sure but I, I end up splayed across the track couldn't actually move you couldn't move meaning you couldn't move your limbs or you couldn't move anything or you were just frozen or what do you mean yeah I was just probably maybe a bit dazed Lana and and you know I was just lying there yeah I, I, I'm not sure that I even tried to move but I do remember I was on my back and uh, the whiz of bikes going past me at some incredible speed and in hindsight I was so lucky that uh, one of them didn't career into because my injuries were the left side and I was so lucky that somebody didn't career into the right side of me at, at the time. Right. And so I'm not sure how long I laid there for, but I, I, I vividly remember, and I think it was a few minutes after I'd had the accident, that um, a mate of mine who was um, behind me, he was actually a, 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 a high, highly decorated sailor and had sailed on the Australia Two America's Cup and was still a, a semi-professional to a professional sailor and knew lots about sort of first aid, etc., he saw me on the ground, he pulled over. I, I didn't know it, but he waved down a couple of cyclists, sent one up the road and sent one back up the hill while I was lying there to tell people to slow down. Then was just whispering in me, my ear uh, initially and then yelling, Paul, you've got to get off the track. You've got to get off the track. I realised that he, he didn't want to lift me because he wasn't sure what my injuries were. And then I remember just getting my right foot because uh, I had my cleats on, and just burying it into the stand to try and sort of push myself off the track. When you have those cleats, you actually, you know, lock into the bike. So had you been yeah. separated from the bike, or were you and the bike just a big tangled mess on the ground? No, somehow I'd separated. I think at impact, the whole bike sort of uh, separated from my feet. So the bike gotcha. had sort of gone off to the, the left, because I must have sort of cartwheeled over onto my left side and the bike I think was actually semi off the track by that stage and I was just lying on the ground sort of close to the middle of the track so I, I was able to sort of get to the side and I remember um, Skip getting he then got behind me and cradled me and I then looked down at my wrist my left wrist and thought oh gee that looks a bit shorter than what it normally is i don't know i might be able to finish today but if not i'll be able to i'll be able to do, <laughs> do that you know and i didn't see any blood but skip tells me later that there were you know bones hanging out of my wrist and blood everywhere but i just didn't see it you know and i was just thinking that's a bugger i've had a bad crash i'm i'm sure i'll be able to get on my bike but but at that stage, but transpired that wasn't sort of such a good thought at the time. But it's funny how, 
your body reacts, you know, to those sorts of things. You think it's not that serious, then when in actual fact it is a bit more serious than what you first think. Were you in pain? Not initially. Initially, I, I sort of looked at my wrist and it wasn't wasn't hurting. And my wrist was, it ended up being the worst injury that I got. But I'd broken all of my ribs on the left side and broken my co- collarbone and absolutely smashed my wrist and probably the first pain that started coming in was my ribs i'm not sure how long it took um obviously i was in a remote area of western australia in the bush with little to no access to me i'm lying there thinking as the pain started to come in this is not good (laughs) Skip was fantastic. He sat behind me, cradling me, just sort of saying, you know, um, you'll be okay. We've got somebody coming. We've got somebody coming. And just sort of kept sort of comforting that. And, you know, I don't know what we talked about, but we talked about something. And meanwhile, you've got all these bicyclists that are still whizzing past you. You were, you know, fairly way up on the on the pack. So there would have been a thousand cyclists riding past you while you're you know, in pieces on the side of the track. I'd like to think, Lana, that there was 1,998 cyclists that went past me, but it wasn't that many. Uh, but, yeah, I, I was probably in the top 200, and so there were at least sort of 1,800 cyclists. But I wasn't looking at cyclists. I was just looking down most of the time. Skip had got a cyclist to go down to the next, whatever station it is because they do have people manning the course every now and again with directions and they were able to radio in but uh, all they could get was a troopie uh, I don't know whether you, anybody knows a land cruiser troopie they're used in the outback a lot and somebody had a, a troopie and there was a, a an event doctor and they got the troopie into the fire trail after all the, the cyclists had gone through only problem with the troopy was it was bare so there was no mattress no nothing so I got loaded into the back of this troopy and got driven maybe five kilometers or so out of the bush along these just radical tracks bouncing around the whole way but they had given me by that stage I don't know they'd given me some sort of painkiller and drove me to the Margaret River hospital which was probably about 20 kilometers away. Paul I some years ago broke three ribs in an accidental fall it was so painful I will never forget it it took a long time to heal and I mean I remember I had trouble breathing I couldn't move one of my arms it's left a very big impression on me so you had six broken ribs and a wrist which has just been absolutely shattered and a broken collarbone and you're in the back of this troopy yeah. bouncing up and down how were you coping well I, I remember that was the most painful part of it and i actually the ribs had punctured my left lung which you know i looked back at at skip and what he did because if somebody had have careered into my right side while i was on the ground i probably wouldn't be here today so you know it was a fantastic thing and forever grateful to skip um and we've got a good i I wrote to the australian government saying he should get a knighthood sir skip and they they (laughs) said he wasn't brave enough so 
I wrote to <laughs> Prince Leonard. There's a Prince Leonard that is now dead, but he in Geraldton he had he, he decided he would start the Hutt River Province. So I wrote him <laughs> saying we should we we should night skip to skip, and he said yeah okay. So we had the whole ceremony after. Anyway, that, that, it was brilliant, brilliant. So we call him Sir Skip now. Sir Skip. He did an amazing job. Uh, they drove me to Margaret River Hospital. Margaret River Hospital couldn't do a lot other than um, painkillers. And so I lay on the table and I remember there was a guy came in with a, a stick through his leg complaining so much. And then he looked at me and he goes, you might need to see him first. <laughs> so anyway, I waited there. I got transferred from there to Bunbury Hospital, whereby they put all sorts of tubes in my lungs, did some sort of semi-repair work, I just bound up my wrist and then waited. And Bunbury Hospital is probably maybe an hour, hour's drive from Margaret River. And Bunbury is about a two and a half, two to two and a half hour drive to Perth. And uh, right. that's when they said, Paul, we're going to um, have to fly you to Royal Perth Hospital. So that's what happened. And by that stage, I mean, the accident happened 10.30 in the morning. And by that stage, it was 11, 11.30 at night because, you know, I'd had the operations wow. in Bunbury Hospital, the initial operations. I was just in their hands at that stage and, and not not knowing what was happening. People had been in touch with my wife and initially, oh, yeah, Paul's had a bit of an accident and she got, she's saying, bloody Paul, I'm going to have to go down and get the caravan. And then he's been transferred to Bunbury. He's got, uh, yeah, he might have to be, and so it progressively got worse for her and she started giving me a bit of sympathy after that. <laughs> <laughs> was there any point between Margaret River and the subsequent hospitals where you were informed of the severity of, of your injuries? Uh, it was at Bunbury that they said, we're flying you to Royal, Royal Perth Trauma Ward, that I realised that, hey, this is a bit more serious. And plus, I, I was having a bit of bit of trouble breathing. I was probably at, at Bunbury Hospital though, when they raced me into surgery that I realised that something was a bit more serious than, you know, not being able to ride the rest of the event. So they transported you, uh, the RFDS came in to, to send you off to Perth. Do you remember that flight? Yeah, oh, that, they were fantastic. I've I got to say, they were just so good. You know, from the moment I got to the airport and, you know, they just start talking to you and, you know, just comfort you because, you know, you're, you're on your own. Once, once I left Sir Skip, you know, you're just in the hands of sort of a whole lot of white-coated and, you know, medical people. You know, had a chat and they wanted to find out about the event and do all that sort of stuff, which took your mind away from it. And then got placed on the on the plane. Obviously, at night, I, I couldn't see any of the, the vista on the, on the way, but I was laying down. There was a nurse on board who just sort of talked to me the whole way there. They were obviously monitoring sort of, I don't know, all my body functions, etc. But they were just fantastic, Lana. They were just, it was so good. And, you know, after being sort of in a, uh, you know, back of a land cruiser, uh, even the ambulance, I, was, I think I was by myself. The comfort of knowing that I was going to be in a, a good hospital 
the plane itself was fantastic. Wouldn't mind another another flight to, to see. You know, but, but no, uh, they were great. And they flew me to Jandicott Airport and then uh, an ambulance met the plane. I was put straight onto an ambulance and then into the trauma ward at Royal Perth Hospital. Did you have to undergo more surgery once you got to Perth? They didn't operate on me to the next day and that was on my wrist I think it was the next day but while I, while I was in there I think I went through a I think it was about five surgeries because my wrist the surgeons one of them said to me that he, he's been working there for, for 20 odd years or something and he's he's never seen a wrist as badly broken it was sort of shattered in about 50 pieces I think they said so that that was the thing that was sort of um required the most medical surgical intervention yeah did you end up with like a you know tons of titanium and a bionic wrist well i haven't got a bionic wrist they kept monitoring it and uh, i ended up having to go to a prominent hand um wrist specialist in perth who wanted to do a series of i think it was five operations and i called it quits at two because i just had enough of surgery because i yeah i had plates in my in my collarbone and I've got lots and lots of titanium in my wrist but it's phenomenal how good it's recovered and how I can use it now. The specialist guy post the the hospital thing had said that I'd get arthritis within two years and they were talking about fusing my wrist but I did sort of uh, I think it was two bone marrow transplants um, uh, from my hip into one of the bones in my wrist because it hadn't sort of even a little bit knitted together, um, but eventually it knitted together enough with the titanium such that my wrist is basically fully functional. Doesn't look pretty, but <laughs> it's fully functional nowadays. So how long did it take for you to actually get to the point where you could use your wrist and you could move about and and resume life as normal? Was I presume it was a fairly long time? I think it was about... 10 or 11 months after the accident that I finally climbed back on a bike and I went for a road ride. In 2014, October, the event, I actually went down as support crew for all my mates down to the Cape to Cape and I took my fat bike down and after the whole field had gone through, I slowly rode my bike from the start line to where the accident was, albeit that I had the brakes on the whole way down the bloody hill. <laughs> you were going very slowly. Very slowly. Was it interesting to go back to that very place where that accident happened? And did you oh. were you able to put things together better? Because often when an accident happens, people have a blackout or a, a part of it that they just can't remember. And by going back to that place and revisiting it, were you able to sort of come to grips with what had happened? Yeah, it was a fascinating exercise. And it was very therapeutic, actually, because it was hard to work out why it had happened. There were plenty of reasons. An accident like that is usually not one thing. It's usually a combination of, you know, stupidity and, and some other factors coming together. I'd identified the stupidity one fairly early on. I actually got to the mound that I took off on 
And it was interesting because the field had just gone through in the 2014 event and there must have been people that had come off because I, I wanted the organisers to put signs at the top of the hill saying dangerous, da-da-da, which they, I don't think they ever did in that event, but I think they did a few years later. And, and that mound, I, I collected so many bits that had come out of people's pockets and stuff like that because obviously there'd been some more people that had, probably not come a cropper like I did, but it was a dangerous part of the course. And I just sat there and sort of reflected on what happened, how Skip got me off the track, all that sort of stuff. And yeah, it was it was a, a good moment for me. And from there, I was able to, you know, I slowly got back into bike riding. And, and in actual fact, I think it was two years after that, my mates talked me into going into the event again. <laughs> Lo and behold. No. You didn't ride your fat bike, did you? No, no, no. no. <laughs> the fat bike was was gone. Uh, I took my mountain bike down. We stayed at a mate's property. I didn't roommate with Skip, but Skip said, look, I'll ride with you the whole event and let's just take it slowly. And so the first day, you know, we, we did the bit that, that I did and, you know, walked the bike along the beach, you know, and all that sort of stuff. And... Um, Day three was probably the most technical day and I just didn't feel comfortable with being there. And I knew my mates would talk me into going in, in that day three. And so yeah. I got up at four o'clock in the morning, jumped in the car, <laughs> drove to Bunbury Maccas, <laughs> rang them up and said, I'm out of here, guys. Enjoy <laughs> the event. So, <laughs> I'm removing myself so that you can't convince me to do it. Uh, uh, and, you know, look, since then, I don't really mountain bike anymore. I, I'll go on rail trails and stuff like that, but I've decided that if I have a fall on my left wrist, it's sort of all over for that, and I value it too much. You know, I really enjoy the mountain biking, but it's for younger people than me, I mean. <laughs> still very active life since then, and still meet all my mates for um, cycling, although I probably do a little bit less of that nowadays. Well, I reckon that Sir Skip deserved his acknowledgement yeah. and what an amazing story I, i'm really glad that it turned out okay for you and that competitive nature of yours has been turned to the the sea instead of mountain bike tracks it's probably a good thing for everybody <laughs> thank you lana life's an adventure and i love new things love adventure love sort of outdoor activities and stuff like that and you know the, the one thing that I did learn from this whole process is that when you do go outside the city you're vulnerable and um, you know if we don't have stuff like the Royal Flying Doctor Service I used to think it was for farmers but it's not it's you know for city folks the minute you go out in the country you're vulnerable I learned a big lesson out of that and love the Royal Flying Doctor Service let me tell you thanks so much for talking to me today Paul thanks Lana Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with family and friends. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also join our new Facebook group called the Flying Doctor Podcast Community, where you can chat to other listeners. And please do try out our new podcast hotline. You can call and leave an audio message with questions and feedback on the podcast. The number for the hotline is 02 7928 We look forward to hearing from you. The Flying Doctor podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell, and senior producer is Mandy Cullen. Thanks again for listening.
Hello, hello, Flying Doctors. This is Tabitha from Canada, and I would just like to say what brilliant stories you are making on the podcast. In my many travels around rural Australia, I'm on the road a lot. Um, I have kept me company on many long hauls. Thank you, thank you so much. They're just terrific. Cheers. Bye. Before I head off, I just want to thank one last time our sponsor and major national partner, Isuzu Ute Australia. Isuzu is committed to supporting the communities in which the RFDS operates, and this podcast would not be possible without their support. To learn more, search Isuzu Ute online.